Well, of all the Sundays of the year, uh, this one, I believe, is the most glorious as we get to celebrate um, Christ's resurrection together. So I invite you to take your Bibles, if you have your Bible, and turn to Romans, the book of Romans. We've been doing a study in the book of Romans. Um, We're going to start in Romans 1. But uh, I just want to say that if you're our guest here, uh, we especially welcome you. We welcome everybody who's here, but thank you for being a guest if you are indeed one. And um, I don't know if you saw in the news an interview this week with a man named Martin Cooper. Um, This week, actually, it was Monday, April 3rd, uh, that marked the 50th anniversary of uh, something that this man invented he invented the first cell phone. Um, That became commercially available about 10 years later in 1983 and sold for $3,500, which is about $10,600 in today's money. Um, Of those who raised, uh, I I wanted to ask you, show of hands, how many of you were born uh, after 1983? Show of hands. Uh, you have never known life without a cell phone. Uh, in fact, I've got a question for those of you who were born after 1983. Do you know what a payphone is? <laughs> we used to have some around this campus, uh, not anymore. Um, but of those, uh, Cooper, when he worked on the, he worked for Motorola and with other people invented, he was the, the guy who got the credit for inventing it. The first cell phone he called the brick affectionately. It had 30 circuit boards. It was nine inches tall, weighed two and a half pounds. How would you like to carry that around in your pockets? Uh, It took 10 hours to fully charge, and out of that charge, you got about 35 minutes of talking time. Um, We've come a long way, baby. Um, The current price today of an average smartphone is just over $200. I think it's $208. And the average price, if you just want a boring flip phone, is $58 today. Um, It's pretty amazing that we have basically instant access uh, anywhere in the world that we want to call another phone uh, for, uh, I guess, a, a monthly fee, of course. Um, I remember being on the island of one of our missionaries uh, in Papua New Guinea. We were up on a mountain, and although I couldn't talk, I got a cell signal. I was like, in the middle of Papua New Guinea? This is crazy. But it happens. Um, So this month also marks the 1,990th birthday of our superior connection to God. Uh, We have instant 24-hour communication. We can come boldly before uh, God and speak directly to him because Jesus rose from the dead. And we have lifetime benefits. Uh, We we all have a prepaid plan, which is kind of nice. The beautiful truth that we have is called the gospel. And it's only because God sent his son to bridge the gap between us and him. Uh, there was one man between us and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus, who was God. And so Jesus, we know, was, and this is on your outline if you're looking at your outline or taking notes, he was a real historical person. He lives today, and his power still changes lives. 
I know it changed my life. I know it changed many of, of your lives. The Apostle Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians, and again, you have it on the outline. The first thing I did was place before you what was placed so emphatically before me, Paul writes, that Christ the Messiah died for our sins exactly as the scripture tells us, and that he was buried, and that he was raised from death on the third day, again, exactly as the scripture says, that he presented himself alive to Peter, then to his closest followers, and later to more than 500 of his followers at the same time. Well, since the beginning of this uh, calendar year, we as a church body have been studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Romans. And uh, we've seen the profound impact of Jesus rising from the dead as we've read this letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. And, and how it brings significant changes to the lives of every follower of Christ. Um, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer, maybe you're here because somebody invited you, I'm glad you're here. Uh, and I hope that as we look at the impact of the resurrection this morning, that you will at least reconsider some of, of your doubts uh, that you may have. Uh, maybe you can at least doubt your doubts um, the original disciples apparently had some of their own unanswered questions, some of their own doubts, if you will. Uh, there's a fascinating verse at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, right before the giving of the Great Commission. And Jesus has his disciples gathered. He's been with them for 40 days uh, following his resurrection. Uh, he's talked with them. He's eaten with them. Uh, they've seen the scars in his hands. And then listen to this in Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. It's actually on your outline. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. That actually blows my mind. Uh, Jesus had been dead for three days. He had hung out with the disciples for over a month. And, and they watched as he was taken up, it says, and disappeared in a cloud in front of them. And yet some of them still doubted. Even after all these amazing things, they, they were still struggling. But they learned to trust him. Not because they had all their question and, questions answered. That's not the issue. But because they knew he had risen from the dead. That makes all the difference. So if you have questions, welcome to the club. There are a lot of people that had questions. Jesus' disciples had questions. Uh, Paul's life was changed after his encounter with Jesus. Uh, he walked away from a world of prestige and, and privilege uh, to lead the church that he sure didn't get uh, a lot of, he sure didn't get money or prestige necessarily. Uh, he left really all power from a worldly perspective to follow Jesus. He was beaten constantly. He spent more time in prison after he became a Christian than he did walking free. Uh, and he died, as tradition says, by being beheaded. One religious historian pointed out that when someone is teaching something they know to be false, sometimes that happens, you'll always find out that their teaching was in some way gaining them money or power or respect. Paul didn't get any of those things. It was quite the opposite. He kept on proclaiming 
uh, Jesus because Jesus was the truth. And we also have <clears throat> the testimony of other apostles as well. Every one of them was tortured or uh, went to a martyr's death. And not one of them ever went back on their testimony. What I want to do this morning is remind us of how in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul establishes the resurrection as the essential cornerstone of Christianity. And through the first six chapters of Rome, Paul explains how Jesus rising from the dead transformed his understanding by revealing some truths that before that time he had not accepted. So the first one, number one on your outline, is that Jesus was who he said he was. In Romans chapter one, look at it if you're there in your Bibles, beginning at verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a, a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, in verse one, Paul says he's a servant of Christ Jesus. You're not a servant of someone who's dead. And this is obviously implies that Jesus is alive. Uh, and, and then he adds in verse one that he's set apart for the gospel of God. What is the gospel? We talk about that a lot here. Uh, Paul says it, he explains it. He says that he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, the resurrection happened by God's power and it's proof of Christ's claim to be God, the son. That's who he claimed to be. There was a famous agnostic once who was a very anti-Christian man, but he saw certain things clearly, and he said one time, as a criticism, something that's absolutely true. Here's what he said. Christianity cannot live in peace with any other form of faith. If that religion be true, there is but one Savior and one inspired book, and but one little narrow path that leads to heaven. Such a religion is necessarily uncompromising. And that is Christianity. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very narrow path. But that is the nature of truth. Truth is very narrow. It wasn't the resurrection that made Jesus the Son of God. Uh, the, the resurrection proved that he was God the Son all along. The second truth that Paul accepted about Jesus, number two on the outline, is that the resurrection is proof that the cross worked. In Romans chapter four, verse 25, Paul writes, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead proves that he was who he said he was and that he accomplished what he said he accomplished. Paul had previously not believed either of those two things. In fact, he was passionately against them. One day Paul woke up with the goal of destroying Christians 
And that night he went to bed having met Jesus on the road to Damascus, believing that God was, that Jesus was God and that he was alive. Paul had been the number one enemy of Christianity and after that day, after a few minutes of his encounter with Christ, he became its biggest champion. One theologian commenting on on that verse, Romans 4.25, put it like this, Christ's resurrection is the amen of the Father. Upon the finished work of, of the Son and the public declaration of our acquittal, when I look on the open tomb and the risen Lord, I know there, is no longer, there no longer remains on me a single sin, no matter how many or how great my sins have been. Why? Because of what Jesus accomplished for us on Good Friday on the cross. Another truth that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans is in Romans 5.10, and that's the number three on your outline, that Christ has an ongoing life and ministry on our behalf. Romans 5.10, Paul writes, uh, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So Paul speaks of being saved through Christ's life. What he's talking about is Jesus' resurrection and his unending ministry for us. You know, we have... In, here in America, we have term limits on some political offices because we don't want a dictator uh, and we don't want someone who's there for life. And so we have laws to limit power. But God says, I can trust my son to intercede for you on your behalf forever. Jesus is our high priest. Another important truth from Romans about Jesus rising from the dead, uh, number four, is that Christ's resurrection means that we walk in newness of life. Paul writes in Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So it's by the power of Jesus rising from the dead that we walk in this new life that we've been given, a resurrection life. It's like we entered into a new country of grace, a new life in a new land. As Christians, our life is characterized differently than it was before we became Christians. Uh, Now we seek to know God. If, If Jesus Christ is God, the implication is that his word is God's word to us. And we're going to try to read that word and understand it and seek to live that word out in our lives. And so this new life, there's, a, there's all kinds of newness that happens. Paul refers to being a new creation in 2 Corinthians. In Ephesians, a new self. Ezekiel says we have a new heart and a new spirit. David the psalmist says we have a new song to sing. And now we walk in a new life as Christians. Another truth from Paul about the resurrection in chapter six, number five, is that we have the promise of being with Jesus for all eternity. Uh, Romans eight is where this comes from. Verse 11 says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, we have that same Holy Spirit living in us. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life 
to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Simply put, Christ's rising from the dead is the guarantee of our own resurrection. We will die physically unless Jesus comes back and we're directly transported into heaven. But if we die, we will one day be resurrected. That is the promise of the Bible. You know, every other religion in the world operates on the premise, I obey, therefore God accepts me. And that's their motivation to do good. That's their motivation. Uh, It's like he's making a list and checking it twice. That's the way their thinking is. I've got to pay attention to what God wants me to do, uh, they say, because that's how they earn their salvation. But the gospel flips that on its head. And the gospel says, God has accepted me. He loves me. I know his grace. Therefore, I will seek to obey him because of his love for me. God has accepted me by a free act of grace. All I have to do, all I can do is to receive it as a gift. Thankfully, but as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. That's in John chapter 1. So praying a prayer doesn't save you. People in every religion pray. Just believing in God doesn't save you. James says the demons believe and they tremble. Going to church, even getting involved in church, doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is turning away from sin. The Bible calls that repentance. And submitting to Christ as Lord. He's our new CEO. He's the the head of our lives. Receiving his free offer of salvation and allowing his power the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead to live in us and begin to change us. It's a confession of faith, if you will. And so it not only comes out of our mouth, but it's matched by the actions of our life. And when that happens, the power of Jesus makes a real, tangible difference. Again, it's not that you become perfect or you lose all desire for sin. Paul will show us in chapter 7 that we'll actually be starting on next week and invite you to come and join us for that. Even the most mature believers, uh, even for them, the Christian life is a continual struggle of temptation, against temptation and against sin. But your life will start showing evidences of Christ in you. How could it not? When you encounter something as powerful as Jesus rising from the dead and not show its effects. The gospel, Paul says, is not a new philosophy to believe. It's not a new set of moral regulations. It's not new resolutions to do better. It's about the infusing into us of the amazing power of the resurrection. And no place is this clearer than like what we've seen in Paul's letter to the Romans. You know, I was privileged to go with uh, about 35 or so from our church in a trip to Turkey and Greece and Rome in the steps of the Apostle Paul. One of the things that we saw was uh, Roman roads uh, were pointed out to us. Uh, There's a network of Roman roads that that covered 74,000 miles among that part of the world in the first century. And that made for the free movement of armies and, and people and goods across the Roman Empire. 
And it was a very visible indicator. Everywhere you went, you'd see these roads in the first century uh, of the power of Rome. And, and they uh, very indirectly helped unify what was a very vast melting pot of cultures and races all across the Roman Empire. Well, uh, somebody years ago uh, came up with uh, the Romans road from the book of Romans, the letter of Paul to the Romans, uh, in order to show the various gospel truths that someone uh, needs to know to be able to understand the message of the gospel. And so there are five stops along this Romans road that everyone needs to make uh, to come to faith in Christ. The first one is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word gospel means good news. And the reason it's good news is that there's bad news. And if you've got this on your outline, this is the bad news. Uh, this verse reminds us that we are all sinners. We're, we're separated from God. There's, Paul says in the same chapter, Romans 3, that there's no one righteous. There's no one good. No one is able to keep the Ten Commandments all the time perfectly. So whether you just sin one time or you're a repeat offender like most of us are, it says in James that no matter if you fail at keeping just one law, you're guilty of all of it according to God's standards. And so what do we do? Well, we need a solution. And the solution is stop number two on the Romans road, and that is Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the truth uh, that, this, that this emphasizes is the unconditional love of God towards, towards us who are sinners. We are sinners. We were hopeless, but God gives us hope because of Jesus. In in our spiritually dead and sinful condition, God chose to show us his grace and his mercy. It wasn't for, if, if it wasn't for God sending his son to deal with our sin, then we couldn't be saved. But God sent his son to save us. You know, during the United States Civil War, Uh, If someone was drafted, and if they could afford it, they could pay for a substitute. Uh, Starting in 1862, the U.S. government allowed this escape from military service on the theory that so long as each name produced one person to to, uh, be there and serve in the army, it made no difference whether it was that drafted person or someone that they were paying Uh, to do that for them. There's a story about a farmer named Blake uh, who was uh, drafted and was deeply troubled because his wife had recently died and he, uh, if he were to leave, he would have no one to uh, be there to care for his children. And so the day before he was supposed to leave for his army, uh, for the army, his service in the army, his friend, uh, Charlie Durham, met Uh, Blake at church, talked to him after church, and he said, Blake, I've been thinking, you're needed here at home. I've decided to go in your place. And Blake uh, held his hand. This this farmer was uh, so moved by what his friend uh, had had done and was willing to do. And so um, they they talked after church, and, and this man went as his substitute. And this Blake praised God for this man who was willing to do that, his friend, for him. 
Well, sadly, Charlie, his friend, was shot and killed in the first battle that he was in. It wasn't far from their home, and so Blake went, found his body, and arranged for it to be shipped back and uh, for it to be buried on the church property, which happened back in those days. And um, on a piece of, of marble, he carved the inscription with his own hands. And it was roughly done, but with every blow of the hammer on the chisel, he wept um, at what his friend had done to be his substitute. And the inscription that he chiseled himself on a gravestone said, he died for me. That was his friend. And that's what Jesus did for us. He died for you so that you could know his father, so that he could be the bridge for you to get to know his father. And this is where the next step on the Romans road comes in. It's stop number three, and it's Romans 6.23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this stop takes us deeper into the bad news. But at the same time, it highlights the good news. And what we earn for our sin is death. Those are the wages of sin. That's what we earn. But just like we have laws here in the United States and California that if not kept will lead to punishment, God has laws that will lead to punishment. If we, we're, and we're all sinners. We, we all deserve that wage. But Jesus paid the penalty for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. So by eternal life, the Bible means that we can count on living with him in heaven. What a promise that we have to live with Jesus forever in heaven. One theologian said that eternal life doesn't mean endless life on earth, but resurrection from death to eternal glory with God. It's like there is now here on earth a bud that will eventually blossom fully when we see him. So we have eternal life in us now. Eternal life starts the moment you become a Christian. And that leads us to stop number four, which is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, that means you have put your faith in him. Anyone in Christ is not going to be condemned for their sin. And will not go to hell and spend an eternity apart from God. If, 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 if that's you, you don't need to walk around. If you've put your trust in Christ, you don't need to walk around feeling guilty or shameful over your sin once you've believed in Christ because your sin is washed away. Once we come to Christ, there's no reason for us to continue living our life like we're under some kind of a dark cloud all the time. We have joy in Christ. We have joy in him. The joy of the Lord is, is our strength. And that leads us to stop number five on the Romans road, and that's Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this is where the rubber meets the road. So let me ask you a few questions. Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord? Do you believe that he is God the Son who died for your sins and rose again? Are, are you willing to confess your sin uh, accepting the bad news that you're spiritually bankrupt without God's help? 
And are you willing to accept the good news that God has made a way for you to spend eternity with him and have a relationship with him now and be saved from the penalty of sin, which is God's wrath? He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, Jesus said in John chapter three. Through faith in Jesus, God's power is here to change you. You don't have to have, live a life of brokenness. You don't have to live a life, a life of hopelessness uh, because Jesus can set you free. He can give you hope. He can give you joy. How do you know if you're saved? Well, the simple answer is that if you have truly believed in Jesus and put your faith in him, then you're saved you, and, then, and God will transform you. Uh, what does that belief mean? It means trust in and rely on and cling to. That's what belief really is. So it's not just head knowledge. It's, it's knowledge of our lives. The gospel is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving a new life. The Christian life is not about believing certain things and then trying to be a decent person. That's not the Christian life. The gospel is about the power of God, raw, life-changing, heart-starting heart starting power. The power to heal, the power to forgive, the power to, to transform, the power to make new. That's what the gospel does. At the center of Christianity, it's not a new moral code. It's not a new perspective on life. It's an empty tomb. And that empty tomb changes everything. The empty tomb shouts that death has been defeated. That's why Good Friday is good because on the cross, Jesus defeated death. And so that means that guilt has been defeated and injustice has been defeated and addictions have been defeated and sorrow has been defeated and despair. If Jesus rose from the dead and he did, it means that guilt doesn't have to have the last word in your life. Jesus took the full penalty of our sin on the cross so that there's no more condemnation. We read that in Romans 8.1. Those, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Injustice doesn't have to be the, the last word. We live in an unjust world. We live in a world where unfair things happen every day. But the resurrection shows us that God is going to overturn those bad things and redeem us into a world where all wrongs will be made right. That's the hope we have in Christ. And he heals us for eternity. Addictions don't have to be the last word. In the resurrection, God released a power on earth that can renew what sin has destroyed in all of us. Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you've messed up your family. Maybe you've messed up your life because of addictions. The resurrection means that he will make all things new. I'm not saying it's going to be a quick and easy process. You may struggle every day for the rest of your life. I'm just saying that the resurrection is the promise of ultimate healing and the motivation to get up tomorrow and keep pressing forward. Sorrow doesn't have to be the last word. That This world, someone described this world as a veil of tears where we watch everything we love eventually fall apart. 
Maybe you've lost someone you've loved and you don't know how you will ever be able to recover from that. The resurrection shows you that that kind of pain does not have to be the last word because we have the hope of heaven. We have the hope to be reunited with our loved ones who are also in Christ. And despair doesn't have to be the last word. Listen, because Jesus is alive, there's hope for all of us. Someone said if you're not dead, God's not done. He still wants to do a work in you. He can still redeem you. The empty tomb means that even death doesn't have the last word. I love this quote by Billy Graham, and because of the resurrection, this is true of every Christian. Billy Graham said, one day you will hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe it? I'll be more alive than ever. I will have just changed addresses. That's true for all of us. The resurrection changes everything. It changes people. Just think about the change it made in those first Christians. We talked about Paul, this harsh man, abrasive, a bigot, even a murderer. But his encounter with Jesus made him consider himself the chief of sinners, become a leader of the church, the bondservant of the church he called himself. Peter was a coward. But his encounter with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, transformed him into a man of courage and one who would eventually die crucified but upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus was crucified. And the apostle John, who was arrogant and vengeful, but his encounter with Jesus led him to be the apostle most known for his beautiful and tender expressions of God's love and who gladly submitted to torture and exile so that others could know the love of God. And there were several prominent women in the early church who had very shady pasts. Some had been oppressed, some had been abused, some some were even prostitutes, some were demon-possessed, but their encounters with Jesus made them mighty women of courage and beauty and strength. He can change you. So do you know the power of God in your life? It's not, have I prayed a prayer? It's not, have I decided to be more spiritual? It's not, am I going to church now? It's not, am I a better person? That's not the issue. Those are not the questions. But have you been born again? That's what Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. Have you received Christ into your life? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right and the power and the privilege to be the children of God. And so you can receive salvation today as a free gift. So I want to be clear about this. The gospel is that you and I, we are all condemned under sin. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, in 1878, uh, Victoria was Queen of England. Her third child was Princess Alice, uh, who married a king who was a king of a small German state. They had a number of children, um, but several of them contracted what was called black diphtheria. And after one of their little girls died, uh, they were horrified when they found out that their youngest child, a little boy, 
had been diagnosed with the same illness. The doctors told Alice, you're the queen, you cannot go near your boy. Uh, We have a nanny, we have somebody who will be with him and near him to help him, but you cannot go near him because you will die. And Queen Alice was standing at her son's bedroom one day when she heard him ask the nanny, why does my mommy not come and kiss me anymore? And Queen Alice broke into the door and ran to her son and smothered him with kisses. It was less than a week later that they buried Queen Alice having contracted black diphtheria. So let me tell you something. You were dying. I was dying eternally in our sins. We were dying in our sins and our transgressions against God. And when we become a Christian, it's we, we become a Christian as we cry out to God for his grace and his mercy. And when we do that, because he reigns as king, God will hear your cry and come and take you up into his arms and smother you with the kiss of grace so that you can know him personally. And it took the death of Jesus for him to be able to do that. If you're here this morning and you know that when you die, you will be with Jesus for all eternity, I want to challenge you to to learn and know, grasp those verses of the Romans road and share them with someone. Uh, One of your friends or family members who need Jesus themselves. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure where you will spend eternity, I want to give you that opportunity to receive him today. Let's pray together. As your heads are bowed, if you've never received Christ to be your Savior and Lord, or you're not sure, then I invite you to pray this prayer silently in your heart right now. Dear Lord Jesus, I realize I can never be acceptable to you on my own, but because you died and were raised, everything you've done comes into my account. I trust you. I want to rely on you alone. Thank you that, Father, when we come to you, you hold on to us. We want to hold on tightly to you every day, all the time. Jesus, we thank you that you are our resurrection and our life right now. So I receive you into my life as my Savior and Lord. Help me to turn over every part of my life to your management. I want to learn to relax in your love. Thank you that I don't have to earn it or deserve it or work for it. I can't. But I do want to use the rest of my life to serve you instead of serving myself. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. And so this comes from the end of, of the book of Romans, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. May our dependably steady and warmly personal God develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with us all. Then we'll be a choir. Not our voices only, but our very lives singing in harmony 
in a stunning anthem to God the Father of our Master Jesus. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us and have a blessed Easter.